Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm speaking again with my friends, Stuart Nyberg and Daniel Kavarnberg, about private equity consolidation, this time in the context of pain management practices. This is going to continue to be a recurring theme on this show as private equity has a more and more pronounced presence in healthcare. And what we want is for physicians to be empowered and equipped to understand what are these dynamics? What does it mean for practice? What does it mean for a physician exit from practice? What does it mean for employment? All that stuff. We tackle all that and more in this week's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. As promised, I'm bringing to you this week part two, the pain management sequel, to our conversation around private equity, industry consolidation, and the like. I'm here with Stuart Nyberg and Daniel Kvarnberg of Physician Advisory Solutions, here to lend their expertise on consolidation in pain management. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having us back again. Uh, just a quick overview about Physician Advisory Solutions. We are an advisory and full service valuation firm. Um, our goal really is to help physicians become more efficient, more profitable, and increase their overall value for the best possible exit for uh, you know, a liquidity event. Um, we also, the way that we accomplish these goals is really by looking at financials, operations, business strategic initiatives, um, and, you know, on the valuation side, we provide all aspects of valuations from partnership buy-ins, uh, valuations for transactions and compensation, fair market value valuations, all aspects of the valuation world. Um, our clients really are nationwide and they are anywhere from single physician practices all the way up to large healthcare systems. Um, along with me, uh, my partner, Stuart Nyberg, he is a CPA ABV, which he's accredited in business valuation. He's also a CFA and uh, has been involved in over 1,000 healthcare transaction evaluations. You're a CPA and a CFA, and I didn't know that until now. I am. Yeah, that's correct. A lot of time wow. studying. So we're, we're fellow financial people, and I uh, didn't even realize it. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I, I want to talk about the involvement of private equity in, you know, in medicine and specifically in pain practices. And we talked uh, last time about anesthesia and, and the, the role of private equity there. But I think in the interventional pain space, there's, there's a little more meat on the bone. And I'm looking forward to unpacking this. Maybe to start us off, Stuart, just give us a little bit of context for like, what are you seeing right now? Or what are some recent transactions you've been involved with having to do with PE in uh, pain medicine? Yeah, no, no. Good, good, good questions, Justin. And yeah, there definitely is um, a little bit more meat when you start getting into the pain management uh, subset of this specialty. Uh, you know, it, you, it, and when I say meat, you know, there, there's a little bit more creativity with regard to transaction structure, usually with ancillary forms of income, um, you know, physicians ability to, uh, uh, you know, generate excess profit margins, you know, through different means. Um, you know, so, it, you know, it, and then when private equity comes in, they obviously want to take a look at 
different aspects of a particular practice, you know, multiple locations, you know, how are you leveraging, you know, other, you know, mid-level providers, uh, you know, is there a surgery center component? Is there, you know, a physical therapy component? Is there potentially a DME component or a, a pharmacy component that, you know, that uh, many of these physicians, you know, who are generally a bit more entrepreneurial try to take advantage of. And, you know, the more uh, ancillary revenue and profit that could fall off the bottom line of one of these businesses could drive substantial value and could drive, you know, more scale and a larger multiple, uh, you know, when you're looking at a financial buyer, such as a private equity fund. Yeah. So Daniel in his intro used the, the, the word valuation a few times, and you just mentioned this word multiple. So I want to talk about this because our, by and large, our audience is non-financially oriented, trying to get you know, this information, but don't necessarily know what that means. So when we're talking about multiple, maybe just give us a very basic explanation of what, what are we talking about when we say a multiple that something is transacting at and what, give us a couple different examples of what a business uh, specifically, you know, what a pain practice might look like and what that might mean in terms of multiple. So generally in the, in the healthcare world, a multiple would be, you know, a multiplier on top of the profit stream of a business. So if someone were to buy your business, they would say, all right, let's say you have a million dollars of earnings. Hypothetically speaking, if you had a multiplier of five times your earnings, the, the purchase price of your business would be $5 million. Now, when we break it more into the financial definition of a multiple, it's essentially calculating the inverse of what the growth potential of your business is, less the risk associated with your business. So if you have more growth potential, all things being equal, you would have a larger multiple. If you have more risk associated with your business, you would have less of a multiple associated with it. So multiples are used quite frequently because you know it's a, a common nomenclature in the financial buyer and even the strategic buyer world. Uh, but, you know, when someone says to you, here's your multiple for a physician to really understand it, the higher the multiple, they really are saying that there's more growth potential compared to the risk in your business. And the lower the multiple, they feel there's less growth potential and more risk associated with your business. So I think that's always an important distinction, you know, to initially talk about with someone is that, you know, there aren't just arbitrary multiples out there. It's really some sort of uh, calculation associated with growth and risk opportunities with a practice. And are there any rules of thumb as far as multiples for different types of practice or different sizes of practice? Oh, yeah. I mean, like generally, you know, very, very small practices, you know, they may not even get a multiple. You know, someone may say, you know, well, I think your practice is worth generally, uh, you know, the equipment and, you know, maybe I'll give you a couple dollars for your medical records as well. As practices scale and have multiple physicians, multiple revenue streams, you know, the, some of the smaller practices that have, you know, like I said, more growth potential because they've diversified the physician base, they've diversified the, the patient base, and there's more growth compared to the risk associated with, let's say, a one-doc practice. You know, you can generally command, you know, like five or six times earnings multiples for some of these smaller practices that have demonstrated scale. Uh, you know, but then, you know, we start looking at, you know, some of these more massive transactions with hundreds of physicians associated with it. Uh, you know, the private equity comes in and drops hundreds of millions or billions of dollars even. I think Aries Capital Management dropped uh, like $1.5 on a multi-specialty practice about two years ago. 
uh, you know, those practices, you know, that have substantial growth opportunity because they will attract new recruits and have, you know, limited their downside risk because there's diversification over physicians and services. You know, those, those practices could sell for 10, 12, 13 times earnings at the end of the day, you know, very substantial multiples in this, in this world. And so there's actually some overlap between my industry of financial planning and financial advice and, you know, the solo practitioner situation where the more infrastructure you build around a doctor, the more uh, you can sort of plug in any random person, and I'll put that in air quotes, any random physician to come in and run the system that you've put in place, the more valuable an entity is. So if I'm a doctor and it's just me, to your point, Stuart, about the solo practitioner, like if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, God forbid, my practice is only worth the value of the C-arm and like whatever's left on the lease. Whereas if I have a system in place and I have a couple other, you know, providers who uh, they can, you know, there's a, there's a really good operations manual and I can plug in new employees there. That's what's going to give value because then I can remove myself as the founder or as other employees. We can, we can create that value because of the system and because of the, the way that it's not contingent on the, the value of the person who's running it. Is that fair to say? Oh, ab- absolutely fair to say. I mean, you, you definitely want to take into consideration that scale opportunity. And that's sort of how, you know, to get back to our initial, you know, uh, topic of conversation is the private equity interest in these practices. They A lot of them use this hub and spoke model where they're going to want to buy, uh, a, you know, not a huge practice, but a substantial practice that, you know, can serve as sort of the base operations or serve as the hub in this particular fact pattern and then add on to it. Because private equity wants to create more scale, more diversification, more opportunity to have this plug and play system in place. And the larger they are able to get that point too with add-on acquisitions and recruiting new doctors to their particular platform, you know, they get to then exit at a much more substantial multiple than they buy in because that's the goal of private equity is to buy a business and then make it diff. I'm not going to say better. I will say make it different, you know, but will in turn, you know, uh, you know, generate a larger return for their investors themselves. So to kind of put, a tangible example, they might buy a smaller practice with, you know, a, a couple doctors and it's a low multiple because there's not a lot, there's still business risk because the, the founders, the partners are very involved. And if any one of them left, it would be a, a cataclysmic event for this small practice. But if they buy it for one and a half times profit, and then they build this infrastructure around it because a private equity company, that's what they're good at is like business strategy. How do we systematize? How do we make efficient? And again, this you could argue whether this is good or bad. There's certainly major uh, challenges and problems with that. But if they do that, they insulate this practice from some of this business risk. And then the multiple grows, if they buy it at one and a half, then they can sell that same practice at you know six. And hopefully the profits have gone up in that time. Exactly. And, that, and that's, that's where the- they make their money. Yeah, that, that, that's the big thing is it's sort of a two pronged approach on the private equity side, Justin, is not only, you know, they buy this smaller practice, you know, let's say there's a couple hundred thousand of profits in it, you know, and they get it for a lower multiple, but it's almost, I don't want to say an arbitrage, but it's like an arbitrage pay where they, you know, they increase not only the multiple, but they increase the profits on it as well. So there's sort of a double whammy in terms of their returns. Yeah. And so it's important to point out, you know, for physicians who are thinking, huh, we've gotten about 13 minutes into this episode and haven't said anything about patient yet or patient care. Yeah, uh, you're right. And that's that's one of the challenges is that if you're looking at a medical practice like it's a balance sheet or an income statement, that's the problem, right? And that's one of the challenges with medicine. And so my hope 
is that as we work through this topic together, uh, you know, physician listeners are going to be able to be more equipped, more informed to enter into this conversation as stakeholders of the seat at the table rather than being on the menu. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, that, and that's the thing at the end of the day is that physicians need to realize what their importance is in this particular function. They're the ones that are delivering the care. And I don't want to say that we're in a world of commoditized medicine because I think that there is some unique uh, you know, aspects that every physician can bring to their particular patients. And, you know, they, they should be paid rightfully so for that at the end of the day. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, I, I want to take, maybe we can do like a, a mini case study on the fly here. And um, for a practice that comes to you and says, Stuart, I want to, I'm interested in an infusion of capital. I want to take on an outside investor. I want to expand. I want to take this really great model that I've built. I want to have some smart people who can help me make the model better. And then I want to be a part of opening a couple other locations and, uh, you know, grow the practice, grow the, the things that we're doing here as part of pain practice ABC. And I want to make sure I'm getting the best deal that I can in this transaction when I'm bringing in an investor to, you know, have this liquidity event for myself. Cause I'm trying to like retire someday. Uh, as somebody who's coming to you with those types of questions, how are you? How does that conversation go? What are you asking them? What kinds of things should they be thinking about if they're interested in outside investment with private equity? Yeah, and, and I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to unpack the particular practice that we're looking at right now. You know, is this you know two docs working together in you know one or two office settings? You know, is it uh, a situation where you know we have a surgery center component where you know we're kind of you know, playing the game, you know, do we move cases to the surgery center versus an in-office setting to maximize profitability? You know, as you mentioned, Justin, you know, what other ancillaries are there in there? Do they have a C arm? Are they exploring imaging opportunities? Is there a pharmacy? Is there PT? Uh, so, you know, it's really about, um, you know, seizing all different profit streams that make the most sense uh, from like a, an ecosystem of uh, delivering care to their particular patients. And then seeing whether or not it makes sense to, you know, potentially drop one of those and then do a deal, add one of those and then do a deal. Uh, you know, what is the use of capital? Are we just going to use the capital to, you know, buy a home in the, uh, in the Bahamas and, you know, not practice medicine ever again? Are we considering, um, you know, uh, staying on for a period of time to transition the practice to someone else? Is the goal going to be that not only do we have to stay on, but we have to recruit three or four new docs to grow the practice as well? And are we using the capital for that? So, you know, it, it's really, you know, I guess when you meet with a client and you put together, you know, the investment opportunity and, you know, the plan and, you know, you assess what their risk tolerance is and, you know, where they want to be and what, you know, short term and long term expenses they're going to have. You know, we also want to do the same thing, you know, with a physician that's exploring a transaction, you know, where are you now? What do you have to plan for in the future? What do you want to plan for in the future? And, you know, how can we get there reasonably, you know, with uh, uh, the amount of capital that could come into the business, um, you know, that, that could be expected because, you know, you know, sometimes we do have to have those very difficult conversations that, you know, there could be one or two docs that say, oh, hey, I read about this practice that, you know, sold for 12 times earnings, you know, can you get me 12 times earnings? And I have to say, well, hey, guys, like, you know, guy, guys and ladies, you know, like, I don't think that that's going to be a feasible option right now, you know, but if we want to get to that point, you know, here's, here's the, the playbook to how to get there. And, you know, that that's where you want to be. 
And you said something that I want to come back to in a minute, but it's interesting. When we're talking about these multiple expansion and buying at a certain multiple. I'm reminded of this thing we have in finance called the greater fool theory, which Stuart is obviously familiar with. So the idea that eventually you're buying something that's so expensive that it's untethered from the actual value of the thing. And you're counting on somebody who's a greater fool than you to come along and buy it later. And any listeners, you can Google the uh, the Dutch tulip bulb craze, which was like the original first time that this idea was codified where in the 1500s tulip bulbs for yeah tulip like a flower were being sold and traded and then there there was a a frenzy a buying frenzy and they got very 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 valuable but at the end of the day it was still like a little thing that you plant in the ground that grows a flower so people were transacting on tulip bulbs with the idea that a greater fool would come along later and the tulip bulb that they bought for seven thousand dollars they could sell to somebody else for nine thousand and so as you're thinking about multiple expansion and like one times, three times, five times earnings, the point is the more expensive you're buying something, the harder it is to add value and the more you're dependent on somebody else who's going to view this situation perhaps with rose-colored glasses in order to pay you even more than what you paid for it. So that's an important dynamic to keep in mind here. Um, Stuart, you mentioned uh, you know, the, the idea of the surgery center and the integration of a surgery center into it, you know, if you've got an off, a couple offices in a surgery center, talk a little bit about why, why does it matter where a patient has a procedure done? How does that work as far as the site of service differential? Maybe you can take a minute and unpack. And do you frequently see, or get, maybe give us a couple examples of, have you worked with physicians who they were doing it all wrong? They didn't realize that they weren't taking advantage of the surgery center the way that they needed to. And as such, maybe weren't as profitable as they could have been. Oh, yeah. No. So, I mean, obviously, you know, Justin, that's a great point. Um, you know, so every year, you know, CMS puts out, you know, what the reimbursement is for, you know, different procedures. And, you know, over time, you know, as we've tried to move patients away from an inpatient hospital setting to limit, you know, healthcare costs, they've allowed more surgeries and procedures to be done in a surgery center. So, you know, day in, day out type of thing even more so lately, you know, the same procedures that have moved to a surgery center have now moved to an in-office setting. So that way, if you have a physician practice, you can do a lot of work that was once only allowed in a surgery center in an office. And frankly, you get a different reimbursement amount if you do it in an office versus if you do it in a surgery center. And that largely stems from the fact that if you do the same procedure in an office versus a surgery center, you typically will have less expenses associated with it. There's many more regulatory restrictions associated with an outpatient surgical facility that are just going to drive the costs of surgery up there. However, in, especially in pain management and what I've seen, and I would say most of the physicians that I've worked with in pain management, they haven't been doing it wrong, but they've almost been doing it too well, where they have really uh, mastered the art of you know, getting the right billing and collections person and they enable you to, you know, say, all right, well, you know, these particular commercial insurers, we're going to do them all in the surgery center, but any Medicare patient, we're going to do it in the, in the office. And it could be vice versa in different geographic locations as well. Uh, but, you know, they, they've been very good about putting the right payer in the, for the right procedure in the right facility in order to maximize those profits. And I've seen a lot of pain management docs do very well in that regard. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very powerful tool to use, uh, you know, when you integrate the surgery center and the in-office setting uh, into the overall, you know, uh, you know, personal financial picture. It's also mind-numbing when you realize 
doing an injection in a hospital outpatient department is going to cost from an insurance standpoint, like three or four or five times as much as if it was done in the office when it's the same needle, the same drug. It's, it's a good example, I think, of how messed up healthcare is personally. And also of the power of the, the hospital lobby. Like if hospitals are getting 5X for that same procedure, uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like I, I can tell you that there was once a situation, not to divert from pain, but I was working with some GI docs. And, you know, if you did a, a, a colonoscopy in their ASC, it was five times the the reimbursement is if you did a colonoscopy in an ASC about 10 miles down the road, the exact same procedure, but they were getting five times the reimbursement for because it. Because of the, the contract that they had with the payer, you mean? Exactly. Their partners yeah. contract with the payer. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing what's going on in the world and how some people are able to take advantage of it. And Hey, look, we're in a, a capitalistic society. So, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, you can take advantage of it, but, uh, it, it's remarkable the kind of, uh, uh, variation in these things. Yeah. And so I've, I got to take it in like bite sizes. Cause if I look at the whole, it's, it's just so overwhelming, you know, and, and I try to like say, okay, anesthesia pain management, this is my little corner of the world. And it's complicated enough trying to understand, you know, this stuff as it relates to one specialty. Um, I'm curious what you think about the idea of solo practice. I'm currently, I, I'm a big like proponent of and believer in independent physician practice um, just because of the autonomy that it gives a doctor to make their own decisions clinically, business-wise and all that. Obviously, there's a lot of, the, the forces of healthcare are not super friendly to independent physician practice. How do you perceive the outlook for either a solo practitioner or a, an independent practice in the in light of the current environment with PE and with consolidation and with big money and big medicine and trying to, you know, play with the big boys out there. Yeah, you know, it, it really it down, it becomes, you know, what does the physician's preference, um, you know, do they want to, uh, you know, have the autonomy of being a sole practitioner, uh, you know, and just because, you know, the if someone wants to be a sole practitioner doesn't mean you know they can't create their own little empire you know you can bring in you know certain ancillaries you can bring in other employed docs who you know might not might just want to collect the paycheck and not run a business so you know if you want to be entrepreneurial and you want to try to maximize your earnings you can there's pain docs that are very successful and can put that kind of thing together um you know look at just you know starting a business in america you know, with regard to whether you want to be a solo pain doc or whether you want to open a furniture store, uh, you know, it, it, it's just, it's tougher now. You know, I remember, you know, you could hear all these stories about people from the fifties and sixties that went and got a, a $15,000 bank loan. And then they were able to start these massive uh, operations. I mean, it's just, everything's tougher. Everything's a little bit more expensive right now. So it's whether you want to do that or whether you want to, you know, get a really nice salary go work for, you know, one of these public companies or a private equity backed, you know, substantial group, you know, you know, you're going to get your pay on the 15th and the 30th, you'll get a great bonus structure. Uh, you know, they will do all the marketing, they will do all the admin, they will take care of all your billing and collecting. Um, you know, it really just depends on, you know, whether you want to take that entrepreneurial step forward, or if you want to be an employee, which I respect both at the end of the day, you know, well, it, and to add on to that, it's, it's a great, exit strategy too to go private equity if you have that entrepreneurial way of thinking to then as you're getting older where you're getting sick of managing everything you can exit still work have the nice cush job good income everything like that 
but it gives you that that liquidity event and that those options. So you know, I always think it's a great way to look at it for your exit strategy down the road. You know, you don't want to wait till all right six months before you uh, are going to exit. Say, all right, I'm going to sell my company. You know. And then not work again, that really lowers your value. But if you are saying, all right, well, you know what? I want to stop working in three to five years. That's a good time to exit to say private equity or joining a larger group because then you can slowly phase your practice, you know, your, your workload out and, you know, actually have a, a, a really nice sized liquidity event, which then, you know, is better for, for you to help them manage that money. Yeah, that's a good point, Daniel. And also, if you give yourself that runway, I mean, you could make an argument at the very beginning, day one, you should be building infrastructure in your business that is creating, you know, automation value that it can run without you as much as possible, creating those policies and procedures and the business intelligence to allow that to happen so that when you do uh, exit, it's a little bit, uh, you know, you're going to get a higher multiple because it's a better functioning business. It's more profitable. Employees know what to do when they show up. Uh, patient care is very consistent. You get good outcomes, and that's going to be a more enticing uh, deal for somebody coming in with some cash that's looking to make an acquisition like that. Um, maybe, Stuart, can you just take us through a couple recent deals that you've either looked at or been involved with and just talk about what happened? What, what did you look at? What did you find? And how did it all work out? Yeah, no, I, I you know, recently just was involved with a fairly large transaction, uh, very, very successful pain management physician uh, who, um, you know, had done a, and I think this was just, you know, right at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, had about 14 locations, multiple surgery centers, uh, you know, several ancillaries, did a very good job moving cases back and forth between, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the surgery center versus the in-office setting. Uh, many employed physicians was able to retain, you know, a good group. I think all in all, there was about eight doctors uh, and, 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 you know, several ancillary opportunities. Uh, I'd worked with them for many years. Uh, I had helped with, you know, a couple of the front end aspects of the transaction and a couple of the back end aspects to, you know, assist with some tax purposes. Uh, but you know, just so when you say front well. end, are you talking about like the the actual deal to sell the practice? Yeah, the M and A due diligence on the front end, exactly. And then there were some you know stuff on the back end. I assisted with with a, a you know personal goodwill allocation and you know minimizing tax burden and whatnot. So we could you know handle all of that type uh, of work. But um, you know, th they were essentially with the size of their practice, they were essentially becoming the hub. And now this financial buyer was looking to add on with spokes all over the country. So this was a situation where, you know, it was a very well-established, well-diversified uh, business, uh, you know, had all the, you know, checked all the right boxes, you know, had been preparing for the transaction, I would say probably about three years, you know, and setting themselves up, you know, to have all of the right systems in place the right legal structure, uh, right ancillary revenue streams, um, you know, and just was overall a very impressive operation, you know, it was a very charismatic senior physician that was involved, uh, you know, who could talk their way through the deal as well. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it, for me, it was an easy transaction because, you know, they, we, all the pieces were, uh, you know, right where, where they should be. Um, so, you know, as of most recent, you know, I'd say just, and, and they got it done in the midst of COVID. So, you know, that's the other thing that's impressive too, is that they uh, were able to close that deal. When someone like that comes to you, 
do you have you know private equity buyers that are kind of on your list or like oh i know you'd be a good fit for abc fund let me get them on the or how does that matchmaking process work so so this one it was sort of a newly established financial group that raised a little capital so they came to me already with uh, a buyer in place uh you know and we were just sort of helping out on sort of an advisory standpoint um but uh yeah i mean look uh, you know practices you know with private equity you know we can make a dozen phone calls and you know we'll get a handful of people that are very interested and you know depending on the specialty pain management you know very hot you know very specific uh um, attributes to a practice that they'll look for um you know if you want to be that hub position you know and get sort of the larger multiple up front on a on a liquidity event you know you got to fit the bill. You got to have, you know, multiple doctors, diversification of risk. If you want to be an add-on, you know, look, two docs that have a couple locations and an ASC, that's the perfect add-on right now. And, you know, I think that, you know, people that would be interested in that type of model, there's different people that we call for them versus if there was a, a 12 doc physician practice that wanted to put a big deal together. What do you mean when you say add-on? Oh, so like it, you buy a, so think of, think of it like a hub and spoke model, just you have a large practice that you put together, they get a, a financial buyer to come in and give them a bunch of capital. So now they don't want to keep that practice the same size for forever. They want to add on, you know, two, three, four docs, you know, at a time. And if possible, they can do an M&A deal with a much larger group as well. They'll, you know, they'll explore that also. You know, the capital for these kinds of things, um, you know, is abundant. I actually had a conversation with a, a, an investment banker that, you know, exclusively does healthcare uh, and, you know, really, you know, loves the practice acquisition world right now. And, you know, he basically quote, when he said to me, send me some practices, the bigger, the better, you know, the bigger, the better, everyone will make a whole lot more money, the bigger, the better. Talk a little bit about the hub and spoke idea, how that works in practice. So I understand like you buy a hub and then you try to, I guess, find the spokes. Uh, how, how does that work? Like boots on the ground? Who's Who's doing that actual implementation? Is it something where the private equity says like, we're gonna buy this practice and then the private equity company with their executives or their like whatever their deal team's gonna go in and they're gonna like try to find other practices that could be another acquisition target or are they launching new practices or how does that work? Uh, so it's a combination of a few different things. Um, you know, they, they wanna have that practice. First, they wanna get the, the base practice that they bought situated. You know, they wanna get the right systems in place. The right people in place. Usually, there's some sort of management company that's going to come in and oversee it because they the, the word of the the word is scale. You know, they got to be able to scale this thing. Then it's a combination of you know a few different strategies. One, uh, you know, recruiting efforts. You know, work because of the cheapest way that they're going to find new docs is just by recruiting new docs to just take a job. You know, so that, that pay them a good salary. That's great. Then there's the add-on acquisition. You know two doc practice, three doc practice here or there, maybe they have an ASC also. That purchase price is gonna be a lot more reasonable from a multiple standpoint than if they were to buy a 25 doc practice, realistically. So, you know, they can probably get some debt financing to go out and buy these practices and roll them up, you know, and once those practices are no longer duplicating efforts in terms of, you know, back office management and billing functions, you know, there's scale and you can grow this thing to something even larger. 
Now, you know, the third thing, which is the most costly, but, you know, if there are synergistic impacts to it is, you know, do we find another 20 doc, 30 doc practice to roll into the business and do, you know, real M&A at this point? And, you know, if the financials and, you know, the operations yield that to be a good opportunity, then, you know, 100% they'll explore M&A, you know, and then from that point on, you know, you know, after the practice is scaled in place, you know, how do we get to a point where, you know, we can exit for a multiple that, you know, is going to be much larger than what we originally paid? Okay. So two things that are uh, come to mind. Uh, the first is I'm curious from a, if I'm a physician, I'm, you know, me and my buddies are hundred percent equity owners in this, you know, practice and maybe a surgery center. And we're, we want to, we want to sell a piece. I'm curious how popular this is to maybe a private equity company wants doctors that are invested, that are going to be committed to growth. And one of the ways to do that is to have a fractional sale, right? We're not, it's not private equity buys hundred percent, private equity maybe buys 50%. So if, if I own like a 30% stake of a practice, I might sell half to the private equity company at a low multiple of like whatever, two or three or whatever we're kind of worth at that point with the hopes that my remaining 15%, if I am good at, you know, I stick around, I'm recruiting doctors, I'm trying to launch new practices, I'm doing all these other things, that 15% that I kept, maybe I can sell down the road for you know, five or seven or 10 X. Is that, is that a pretty common structure to this type of, you know, sequence of events or these types of deals? Oh yeah. No, I mean, private equity is going to want to try to keep the physicians engaged one way or another. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, you can get creative, especially in states where there's corporate practices of medicine laws, where you establish, uh, like a, a management services organization entity on top of the physician practice. And then you can have non-physician owners involved, you know, as well, and then give the physician owners and, you know, create some sort of joint venture structure. So, you know, there's definitely a way to do that, to keep the physicians engaged in the business. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, when health systems do these deals, you know, they just buy the whole thing outright. There's no joint venture with the docs that they, they buy it outright and the docs become employees. Um, so, you know, but, and, and I think there's a, a couple different mindsets, you know, can you, can you make the docs whole with subsequent bonuses and, you know, other types of, uh, uh, you know, revenue streams that they can monetize personally, uh, you know, so that they don't need to have an ownership stake in the practice um, or, you know, do you, do you run the risk of the docs, you know, doing a deal and then leaving? So, you know, you want to keep them, you know, involved in the equity some way whatsoever. So, I, you know, I, I think I answered a lot of the questions last time, Justin, with, you know, it, it depends. And I think this is sort of an it depends situation, you know, just on the temperament of the physicians and the partnership and whatnot. And, you know, whether the deal makes sense one way or another. Yeah. Um, I, I always try to look at things through the lens of someone who's trying to build their career trying to grow and build wealth and come into a place where they can invest themselves and be rewarded for that investment. And so I, uh, I'm i curious in your perspective, looking through that lens, as you look at what private equity is and means, and if a practice just sold for an 11X multiple down the street, and you can't, you understand what that means, like somebody bought this and paid a lot of money for it, and they're, they're sort of banking on being able to take that from 11 to 13, and what that means from a business operation standpoint what does that mean for me as a physician? Uh, or, or does it mean anything? I mean, I look at that and I think, oh gosh, like there's going to be capped upside. There's, I'm not going to have as much flexibility. There's not going to be like as much of a likelihood that I can do a surgery center or something like that. It's just going to, there's no partnership for sure. You know, w w what should I interpret about that kind of situation or am I totally off base? No, 
I mean, I, I think it's good. I mean, I don't think it, you know, I think it'll impact you as much as you want to let it impact you at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, I think what, what does that mean that physician practices are selling for 11, 12, 13 time earnings? I'll be completely honest with you. I think it just means that certain private equity funds just have way too much money right now. I mean, that's just that, that that's what it is. I mean, people have been really good at raising capital and we have to deploy the capital somewhere and we're going to pay a substantial amount for it. Uh, you know, cause at the end of the day, uh, you know, the physicians are meant to be driving care to the patient population. You know, that's, that's the goal of what they should be. Now, some physicians have been incredibly entrepreneurial and have developed, you know, very substantial ancillary revenue streams and built, you know, massive operations. Um, you know, but that the, the main goal at the end of the day is driving clinical care. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, the, the thing with the physician practices for private equity, there's so much continuity. People will always need healthcare. So it's a, it's a safe bet to deploy capital into these operations. Uh, you know, and, but at the same time, because there's been so much competition and so much money's been raised, the prices have gone up and that's where they are right now. Is there anything that has uh, surprised you about any of the deals that you've seen or done or been a part of in this space? Um, I mean, if you asked me like three years ago, I'd tell you the multiples were surprising me, but now I'm just kind of numb to it. Uh, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> the, I mean, like, you know, the, the deals are the deals and, um, you know, look, it's, they're, they're good businesses. I mean, it's, it's, this is a good business that can produce cash flow at the terms that the private equity funds want them to, you know, produce cash flow. Uh, you know, the health systems are still buying up practices. I just got off the phone with someone right now who, you know, is buying a large primary care practice for their health system. And uh, it, 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 it's an amazing market. Let's put it that way. I mean, there was the, the PPM market, you know, 20 years ago, and now there's this market and, you uh, you know, I, I I probably would have said to you, yes, three years ago, you know, four years ago, five years ago, some of these deals would surprise me. But now, you know, it, there's just so many people who are jumping in with it that, um, you know, th this is the way it is. This is this is the world we live in in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any good resources out there for anybody who wants to either learn more or understand how to position themselves to be able to get the best multiple they can for a deal that they're considering for their own practice? I mean, you know, I hate without making a, a a, a self-fulfilling plug here, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, de definitely talk to somebody because, you know, as much as you can read in a book or a trade journal or, you know, some sort of survey, uh, there's so much uh, uniqueness to a particular practice that if you don't have someone who's been a part of, you know, dozens of deals in the past, it's very, very difficult to draw the comparisons between your practice and this one that you're reading about in, you know, uh, mod med that says that they traded for 12, 12 X EBITDA or something, you know? So I really think you need to get someone who, you know, studies practices, analyzes practices, understands both the financial and the operational impacts of them. And, you know, understand why those are either direct or not direct comparisons to what your business. Yeah. Just like anything that's super technical and involved, I guess, you know, <laughs> that, that, that makes perfect sense. It's worth, it's worth the minimal investment to just get someone to take a look at it. I promise you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Stuart, Daniel, it's been a pleasure speaking with you guys today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of APM Success. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. 
Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.